got my clicker on. Technologically challenged person. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be walking around as I preach, so if you're sitting such where I'm behind a pillar, do you want to move a bit? Great. Good morning, everyone. My name's Barbie, and today I'm going to be taking us through Exodus 31, 1 to 32, 29. It's a really large chunk of scripture, so I'm going to be flying through at pace. I'm also going to have lots of visuals. If you get a bit overwhelmed by the visual, just close your eyes and listen. Hopefully you don't close your eyes and go to sleep. Um, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Come and fill us again. Father, I offer you my words. May anything I say that is not of you fall to the ground. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. Amen. So to kick off a little bit about myself, I was born in Zimbabwe and grew up in Zimbabwe. There's a snapshot of the capital city in one corner and a typical rural dwelling in the next corner. So I lived there, got married there, and then um, the country went through hyperinflation and we couldn't afford to live there anymore. So we moved to neighboring Botswana, which is mostly desert, semi-desert and desert. That's the capital city Gaborone where we lived. And just on the outskirts of the capital city is that kind of dwelling you can see there. A very typical dwelling. In the course of my life, I worked as a bookkeeper, an auditor. Uh, I did a very short stint as a very bad waitress in my teens. Um, I've taught aerobics, and then I did a degree in theology with a double major in pastoral counseling and psychology because I wanted to look at all aspects of human functioning. But my first love has always been art, and um, about nine years ago, I started doing it as well as being a full-time mum. So I've really focused on my art since then because it is the passion of my heart. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because today the theme of the sermon is work. What work we do, how we think about work. So we're going to be looking at the Spirit of God empowering the makers of the tabernacle, keeping the Sabbath holy, making and worshipping idols, and killing the family and friends who make and worship idols. The Bible opens in Genesis with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is the very first mention of the Spirit of God. The next mention of the Spirit of God in the Bible is when Joseph has been hauled out of jail to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And um, Pharaoh says, asks his officials, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? That is the second mention of the Spirit of God in the Bible. And then the third mention is in our passage. I will read it to you, and while I read it to you, I'm going to give you something exciting to look at. You can tell I'm a visual person here. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezaliel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, bronze, and silver, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. 
Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. So this passage tells us a couple of things about God. He really loves beauty. He was really concerned about the things that were made to worship him. Um, and he likes beautiful things to be well made. And we can all think, okay, that's quite interesting, but it's not relevant to me at all. But I think it is relevant because the Bible is both an ancient text and it's God's living word. And sometimes um, the Bible asks us a question or it answers our questions. It, it lives, it speaks to us. So when I was reading this chapter, what jumped out at me was the, the, um, the spirit of God being fill, filling the makers of the temple, the doers, were filled with the spirit of God to help them work well. Genesis opens with God creating everything. God saw that all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then a little bit further on, it talks about God creating Adam and making Adam in his image. The, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So God, the first thing that God did after he made Adam was he gave him a job, he gave him work to do. God is a maker, a creator, we're made in his image and he made Adam and gave Adam work to do. Work didn't arise from the fall, it just got much harder and involves more sweat. It's not a punishment. It's something that we're made to do. If we look at the lives of those people who don't have to work, say, for example, the kids of uh, really wealthy people or people who come into wealth suddenly, um, it, it, for a lot of us, I think if you're very young, you think that the dream is to have money and then you can do whatever you like. But if you look at the lives of people who have that opportunity, a lot of them actually self-destruct because Work is really satisfying. We're made to work. We're made to do something. And when, when our life is just endless, whatever, partying, um, it doesn't go well with us generally. Sorry, let's go back. So, the million dollar question is, if we are made to work, what kind of work do we do? C.S. Lewis is one of my fans. He was a very um, important part in my early Christian development. And I found this essay of his on work, which is brilliant. I highly recommend you read it. I'm just going to read some sections of it. There are two sorts of job. Of one sort, a man can truly say, I am doing work which is worth doing. It would still be worth doing if nobody paid for it. But as I have no private means and need to be fed and housed and clothed, I must be paid while I do it. The other kind of job is that in which people do work whose sole purpose is the earning of money. Work which need not be done, ought not to be, or would not be done by anyone in the whole world unless they were paid. We may thank God that there are still plenty of jobs in the first category. The agricultural labor, the policeman, the doctor, the artist, the teacher, the priest, and many others are doing what is worth doing in itself. We may have to earn our living by taking part in the production of objects which are rotten in quality and which, even if they were good in quality, would not be worth producing. 
the demand or market for them having simply been engineered by advertisement. So this was written in the last century. COVID has had a really positive effect in how we think about work in this regard. And we now have a much higher respect for doctors, for nurses, for supermarket cashiers, for shelf packers, truck drivers, farmers, rubbish collectors, teachers. I think respect for teachers has gone up a lot <laughs> for those who've had their kids at home. I think we're really blessed if we have any choice in the kind of work that we do. If we have a choice at doing something that is of value, we are really blessed in the world and we're among the privileged few, actually. I remember thinking this in a cheap um, chain store in Botswana. They sold clothing and they also sold sort of ch really cheap plastic toys. And um, my boys would sometimes use their pocket money and buy one of those cheap things. And they'd play for it for an hour or even a day if it was a really good one and then it would break. And you've got this broken plastic something. So those toys were probably made by some poor person on the other side of the world. They were shipped across the ocean to other poor people who spent, you know, they only don't have much money. They spent their few pula buying a cheap plastic toy that would break and then pollute their environment where they live. Um, I, I read voraciously and I like uh, fantasy and sci-fi. And one of the reasons that I like it is because it gives you a different lens, a different way of looking at the world. So in this particular book, um, a colony has broken off and they've set up their own planet. And a visitor's coming and saying, gosh, this planet's really weird. It's not working the way I'm used to it working. Is it socialist or is it communist? And the person says to him, no, it's not. We are very capitalistic. We just price things at their total value. We don't allow people to buy privileges at the cost of other people's health or future or life expectancy. Those are real costs. Most so-called market systems don't include them. And it's something we need to think about when we're thinking about work. Another very interesting bit in Hayes, you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to make exaggerated claims when you market something or you'll be fined. And the fine is linked to how many people you've made the claim to. No one is allowed to make any untrue or exaggerated claims about a product or they are liable for heavy damages linked to the number of people that the claims were made to. So imagine if that was true in our world. I know that sometimes in our world people design the packaging before they've made the product. They design it to snag you before there's even something to put in it. So I had fun thinking about a couple of adverts. <coughs> Got a bit of a glitch there. Okay. Right, here's our washing powder. <coughs> Superior washing powder removes all heavy stains, whether grease, red wine, tomato, grass, or mud, value for your money. Superior washing powder is not very good at removing stains. It will reduce them slightly, but they'll still be fairly visible. It's a fairly expensive compared to equivalent washing powders. Okay. How about this one? Radiance anti-aging skin cream. Plumps up skin immediately, minimizes wrinkles, produces a glowing finish that leaves you looking 10 years younger. You deserve it. Or, Radiant skin cream is marginally better than aqueous cream. Leaves you looking about the same age, but with less dry skin. Has a beautiful container, is very expensive. <laughs> so.
many of the younger people, Gen Z people, are hesitating about joining the rat race. Um, and it's really great that they're calling us adults on it. I think parents often pressurize their kids to get sort of educated, to get a high-end job, to earn lots of money. And particularly if their parents have struggled with poverty themselves, if you know what it is to struggle to feed your kids what you want for your kid is, for them never have to go through that, and you want them to get educated. And particularly, I mean, living in Africa, education was seen as the way out of poverty, and it often was. It was the way to get out, get educated. So it's a, a very high priority for people there. And um, I would say, if you have a chance to get an education, absolutely go for it. Get as well educated as you can, and then choose a job or do something that really makes a difference in the world. Uh, Sam and Jack were taught by a lovely lady in Botswana, and her t I, knew, I mean, knew her teenage daughter then, <coughs> and she was really concerned about the plastic litter everywhere. There's just litter everywhere in Botswana until the government banned the use of plastic bags, but just bottles. So she got really concerned about it, and she figured out, she was, I don't know, 17, she figured out how to recycle it, and she set up her own little company um, making um, fashion items like handbags and whatever out of plastic, and now her mum is working with, and I think her sister's also joined her. So if you have any idea like that to do something that changes our world, go for it, go for it. Do that. Even if we don't have choice about what work we do, we have to work, we have to pay the bills, and this is what job we can do, let's try and do the very best job we can. C.S. Lewis in that same essay said, when our Lord provided a poor wedding party with an extra glass of wine all round, he was doing good works. But also good work, it was a wine really worth drinking. So whatever we do, let's make it really good quality, even if it's something that we wouldn't actually choose to do. Our next thread in our, our, our passage is that of the Sabbath. <coughs> Observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. That seems really harsh. Like, oh gosh, is God just a tyrant? But I think when we read scripture, we need to look at it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the, is the lens that helps us understand what is going on in the Bible. Sometimes God speaks really harshly to us because we're like disobedient kids, like, I'm not tired, I'm not tired. When they... He tells us things really strongly because it's his way of saying this really matters to me. We are supposed to have a Sabbath because when we stop our busyness and we worship God, we, we stop worshiping ourselves. We are not the center of the universe anymore. God becomes the center. And we find happiness when God is the center. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until we find rest in you. If we live for ourselves, we're not very happy. When we worship God, the world turns the right way up and it is well with our soul. We're also made to connect with other people and having a Sabbath um, where we connect, we eat together, we socialize together, we build those ties is actually brilliant for your mental well-being. There was a fantastic study I read, but I don't have time to go into it, on how much longer you live and how healthier you are if you have strong social ties. So use your Sabbath to worship God and connect with other people. It's also really good to rest in terms of work. God has commanded us to keep the Sabbath because actually we function well when we work and when we rest. 
I'm flying along now. The next thing we're going through is the golden calf. I couldn't find a statue of a golden cow, so I've um, doctored a horse with a cow's head. So we can look at the Israelites worshipping the golden calf and think, well, that's a dumbass. Why did they do that? We would never worship the things we make ourselves. We would never worship the things that other people make. We never worship our own work. We're not like those Israelites. We don't do that. Our priorities are always, of course, God first, and then our family, and then our work. Right? Work is a fantastic servant, but it can be a very tyrannical master. And we are made to work, but work is, is not to master us. We are to master our work. Right. <clears throat> Flying along to the next bit of our passage. Okay, so the, the Israelites have worshipped the golden calf and Moses has come down and said, what is going on? And then he says to the Levites, if you're for God, come to me and then let's kill everyone who's worshipping the golden calf. So I'm, I'm going at pace because I know we're running out of time. Um, and this can look, again, it can look really harsh. Why is God so mean? Why is he like that? And if we think of it again, that God is actually speaking to us strongly because it's what we need. Um, I grew up in a non-Christian family and um, I, had a, I had a friend, my family, the view was that if you, if you were really stupid, then you might be religious. It was for really dumb people with no brain. Um, and I had, but I had a lovely friend who was a Christian and there was something about her that really made me interested in God. So I, one day I found a dusty New Testament and I picked it up and I thought, okay, I'm gonna find out about this Jesus person. And I looked, Matthew, nope, Mark, there's no story of the baby, that's not the one, Luke, okay, Luke. And I read through Luke and the lights came on and I became, I chose to become a Christian then. And when I was reading through Luke, I came across this verse. <clears throat> Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what it said to me at that time was, I knew that my family would hate me becoming a Christian. Was I gonna let it stop me from choosing God? And I wasn't, because I was pretty desperate at that point in time, so I chose to become a Christian, and it gradually became clear to them that's what had happened. And they were, they were really awful about it. They're like, oh, you're so stupid, you know, where's your brain? And then they said, oh, it's just a phase. She'll get over it. Um, so I was going to church, they were like, they were all patronizing of shame, you know. And then I started going to a home group, and they were like, She's joined a cult. They're going to take her money. They're going to have a suicide pact. This is really crazy. Um, so it was very difficult for a while, and they, they made it hard for me. But God is so worth it. Um, and I went through a lot of healing, and I ended up loving them way more than I did before I became a Christian. And our relationship has changed, and they love me way more than they did before I was a Christian. So what looks like the harshness of God is the beauty of God. You put him first, and you you will find that everything else slots into its place, your relationship with people and the work that you do. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone here. I pray that our hearts 
will burn within us because of your love and mercy. Holy Spirit, come and fill each one of us. Will you give us inspiration and comfort and strength with the work of our hands? We offer it to you. May you bless, direct, and empower our vision and our work. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm not going to be moving around, so if you're sitting so that all you can see is a pillar, do you mind moving, just shuffling along so that you can actually see? Thank you. My name is Barbara. Today I'm going to be taking us through Exodus 31 to Exodus 32, 29. It's a big chunk of scripture, so I'm going to do my best to take us through it um, without rushing you too much. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Thank you that you have filled this place as we worshiped you. Father, I offer you my words. May anything that I say that is not of you fall to the ground. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. Amen. So to kick off, a little bit about myself. <coughs> I was born in Zimbabwe, a country which is, has a number of similarities with New Zealand, actually. They're both really beautiful, and the people are really friendly, down to earth. And so I grew up there, got married there, and then the country went through a period of hyperinflation, <coughs> and my family and I could no longer afford to live there, so we moved to neighboring Botswana. That's a picture of the capital city, and just outside of the capital city, you'll find uh, that kind of rural dwelling, very typical. Botswana's beautiful, it's um, mostly uh, semi-desert or desert, um, but it's a lovely place. <coughs> it's very hard to get residents there, though. So a couple of years ago, my family and I moved to New Zealand. During the course of my life, I have worked as an auditor, a bookkeeper, a computer software support person. Um, I've done a bit of aerobics instruction, and I was also a really bad rate just for a time in my teens. When I was an adult, I did a theology degree majoring in pastoral counseling and psychology because I wanted to look at both aspects of human fun functioning. Um, but my first love has always been art. And about nine years ago, I started doing art full-time. Well, as full-time as one can do it when one is a stay-at-home mum. And the reason why I'm telling you about the work that I've done is because today's sermon is basically about the, the theme of work and worship. I'm not going to read our passage all in one go. I'll read it as we go through because it's really long. So the themes that are covered are the Spirit of God empowering the makers of the tabernacle, the keeping of the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy, making and worshipping idols, and then 
killing your family and friends if they were the ones worshipping the idols. The Bible opens with Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's the very first mention of the Spirit of God. The next mention of the Spirit of God was um, when Joseph was hauled out of jail to come and interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he did interpret those dreams, and Pharaoh said to his people, Can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? That's the second mention of the Spirit of God in the Bible. And the third mention of the Spirit of God in the Bible is in our passage. So I'm going to read it to you, and while I read it to you, I'm going to give you something interesting to look at. You can tell I'm a very visual person. If the visuals get too much, just close your eyes and listen. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Asimach of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. So this passage tells us a couple of things about God. It tells us that he's really interested in beauty, and it tells us that he likes things to be well made. He, he put his spirit in the makers of the tabernacle because he wanted it to be amazing. We could think, oh, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting, but it's not relevant to my life at all. But I think the Bible is, is an ancient text, but it's also a living word. And there are times when the Bible, something in the Bible will leap out at us. Sometimes it answers a question that we have, and sometimes it asks us a question. So when I was reading this passage, what leapt out to me was the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God empowering the makers of the temple. Genesis opens with God creating everything. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And God, it goes on a bit more to elaborate how God made Adam. God made Adam in his own image, so Adam is also a creative being. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So the first thing that he did was he gave Adam a job. Sometimes we think uh, we have to work because of the fall. We Work didn't come because of the fall. It just became much harder because of the fall. Work is not punishment. It's something that we're really made to do. Sometimes we have the idea that if we just had enough money and we could just party and do what we like, then we would be happy. Um, but actually, if you look at the lives of those who have endless resources, like you look at a number of the kids of very wealthy people, their parents worked hard maybe to make the money, and then they just have the money. They don't have to work. A lot of them self-destruct because we're actually, we function really well when we have something to do. It really satisfies us.
This is an executive summary of a book that was commissioned by the UK Department for Work and Pensions. Um, they wanted these uh, reviewers to conduct an independent review of all the scientific evidence about work. What about work? Tell us about work. And this is the executive summary. There is a strong evidence base showing that work is generally good for physical and mental health and well-being. Worklessness is associated with poorer physical health and mental health and well-being. Work can be therapeutic and can reverse the adverse effects of unemployment. This is true for healthy people of working age, for many disabled people, for most people with common health problems, and for social security beneficiaries. The provisos are that account must be taken of the nature and quality of the work and its social context. Jobs should be safe and accommodating. Overall, the benefits of work outweigh the risks of work and are greater than the harmful effects of long-term unemployment or prolonged sickness absence. Work is generally good for health and well-being. So the million dollar question is, if we are made to work as human beings, what kind of work should we do? I'm a great fan of C.S. Lewis. He was very instrumental in forming my early theology as a Christian. Um, and I found this fantastic essay on work. I, I highly recommend it. You can read it. You can just Google it. It's so good. C.S. Lewis wrote, there are still two sorts of job. Of one sort, a man can truly say, I am doing work which is wor worth doing. It would still be worth doing if nobody paid for it. But as I have no private means and need to be fed and housed and clothed, I must be paid while I do it. The other kind of job is that in which people do work whose sole purpose is the earning of money. Work which need not be, ought not be, or would not be done by anyone in the whole world unless it were paid. We may thank God that there are still plenty of jobs in the first category. The agricultural labor, the policeman, the doctor, the artist, the teacher, the priest, and many others. So you and I make it onto the list, C.S. Lewis's list, Rob. Um, we may have to earn our living by taking part in the production of objects which are rotten in quality and which, even if they were good in quality, would not be worth producing, the demand or market for them having been simply engineered by advertisement. I think COVID's had a really positive effect on the world in this regard. We now have a greater respect for doctors, nurses, supermarket cashiers, shelf packers, truck drivers, farmers, rubbish collectors, teachers. I noticed respect for teachers went up massively when we were at home trying to teach our kids. I think we are really blessed if we are among the fortunate few in the world who have choice about what kind of work we do. There are many people in the world who have no choice about what they do to try and earn a living. I remember thinking this in Botswana. I was in a chain store that sold cheap clothing and even cheaper plastic toys. And sometimes my boys would use their pocket money and buy one of those plastic things. And they'd play with it for an hour, or if it was a really good one, they'd play for it for a day, and then it would break. Um, so somewhere, somewhere across the world, some poor person worked hard to make that plastic toy. It was shipped across the ocean and sold to other poor people who paid their few poolers to buy that plastic toy, which then broke and polluted their environment. I've just finished reading a really interesting book called Haze. I like reading um, fiction and fantasy because it makes us look at our world through a different lens. And in this book, it's a, it's a planet, and someone is visiting the planet and looking around going, this planet seems to work quite oddly. I don't understand what's going on here. Is it a socialist? 
planet? Is it a communist planet? And the person that he's asking is saying, we are very capitalistic. We just price things at their total value. We don't allow people to buy privileges at the cost of other people's health or future or life expectancy. Those are real costs. Most so-called market systems don't include them. So let's go back to what C.S. Lewis was saying. We may have to earn our living by taking part in the production of objects which are rotten in quality and which, even if they were good in quality, would not be worth producing, the demand or market for them having been simply engineered by advertisement. Um, back to Hayes, there's another quote from Hayes. No one is allowed to make any untrue or exaggerated claims about a project, product, or they are liable for heavy damages linked to the number of people that the claims were made to. So if you made a false advertisement, you'd be fined um, based on the number of people who actually saw it. And that's a bit different from our world because sometimes people design the packaging before they've made the product. Um, so let's compare advertising in our world and advertising in Hayes. Superio washing powder removes all heavy stains, whether grease, red wine, tomato, grass, or mud. Value for your money. Or on, on haze, superior washing powder is not very good at removing stains. It will reduce them slightly, but they will still be visible. It's fairly expensive compared to equivalent washing powders. Which one are you going to buy? Radiance anti-aging skin cream. Plumps up skin immediately, minimizes wrinkles, produces a glowing finish that you, leaves you looking 10 years younger. You deserve it. Radiance skin cream is marginally better than aqueous cream, leaves you looking the same age but with less dry skin, has a beautiful container, is very expensive. Are you going to want to buy it? Many of the younger Gen Z people are hesitating about joining the rat race, and rightly so. It's really good that they're calling us on this. Um, parents often pressurize their children to get educated, to get a really well-paying job. I had the same thing because my family was quite poor at times when I was growing up. Um, you don't want your kid to struggle to feed themselves or their own children, so we push our kids to, to, to get a job that earns a lot of money. Um, and I would say, if you have a chance at a fantastic education, absolutely go for it, and then use it to do something wonderful in our world. You're one of the privileged few if you have a choice at a great education. Sam and Jack were both taught by a lovely lady in Botswana, and her um, teenage daughter was really unhappy about all the litter that was um, visible in Botswana. There's a lot of litter. People throw bags and bottles and stuff everywhere. The government did ban the use of plastic bags, but there's a lot of litter, and it bothered her. So she figured out, she's about 17 at the time, she figured out how to recycle that plastic and to make little clutch bags and other fashion items, and she set up her own little company. Um, and now her mum works for her, and I think her sister's just started working for her as well. So I think if you have any idea about something that benefits our world, do it, go for it, do that thing. Even if we don't have a choice about what kind of work we do, I think it's great if we try and do our work to the best of our ability. 
back to C.S. Lewis's essay, he said, when our Lord provided a poor wedding party with an extra glass of wine all round, he was doing good works, but also good work. It was a wine really worth drinking. I can imagine that Jesus' carpentry was really worth owning, that it was beautiful. Um, we don't hear about his carpentry, but we hear about him making fantastic wine. I'm so thankful to God that I don't have to work in a factory or work at a job that I don't like. I have in the past had to do that. But I pray that when we do, when we are in that situation, that God will really help us to do excellent work, whatever it is that we're doing. The next thread from our passage is that of the Sabbath. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. It will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Gosh, that's a bit harsh. Any who do work on that day must be cut off from their people. In six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day it's a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. I think when we sometimes, when we read scripture, we need to look at it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the lens that helps us see what's going on in the Bible. The New Testament and the Old Testament are seen with him as the focus. So if you look at Jesus, what is God actually saying to us through this? I think it helps to bear in mind from my own perspective when I read things that seem harsh in the Bible, God is the kindest person I have ever met. He has been so kind to me. And I, and I put that, I think about Jesus as the lens when I see things that seem harsh. It's a bit like um, a parent being strict with a child. He says things really, in a really firm way to us because otherwise we don't listen. When we stop being busy and put God back in the center, when we worship him, we move ourselves, because we tend to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, but when we stop and we worship God, we find great peace. St. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We are made to worship God. If we're living for ourselves, we're not happy. When we live for God, the world sort of turns the right way up and we find great joy and great peace. We're also made to connect with other people. The Sabbath is a time to be together, eat together, talk to each other. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a Jewish Sabbath Shabbat celebration. It's very communal. It's a very bonding experience. You, you're just together and then the next day you go and you worship together and it, it really cements community. And you can see it through the history of the, the um, Jewish people. They're very community people. And back to the work thing. I read another study that found that people work better, more efficiently, and are happier when they have a day off, no matter how much they love their work. So even if you're pa really passionate about your work, it's really good to just stop and think about something else for a day. Our final thread that I want to look at <coughs> is that of the making and the worship of the golden calf. I couldn't find a statue of a cow, so I've got a horse and I've docked it a bit with a cow's head. So we can look at the Israelites making and worshiping the golden calf and think, well, that is dumb as. Why would they worship something that they made themselves? 
because we never worship the things that other people have made. There's nothing that we really, you know, worship, idolize. We don't, we don't do that. And we never worship the work of our hands. We never put our work ahead of God, right? Our priorities are always God, then family and people, and then work, aren't they? We need to be really careful with work. We are made to work, but we are to be the masters of our work. Our work is not to be the master of us. It's something that a lot of us have to wrestle with, um, particularly if you love your work or that you, if your work is very high pressure, something that we have to work to get a balance in our lives. Then our final section of the chapter. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, that's the Ten Commandments, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? To not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to, e to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and oh, out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord this day, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Whew, that's quite harsh again, isn't it? Um, before, I, I grew up in a non-Christian family, and my my parents, my family's pretty smart, and they always assumed that if you were Christian or religious, it was just because you were a bit brain dead, you were rather dumb, and that's why you thought it was a good idea. Um, but I had a lovely Christian friend, she was just wonderful. She was really smart, which surprised me, and she was fun and bubbly, and she was, she was awesome. And she was the person who got me thinking about God. I knew there was God, but I didn't know about Jesus. So one day, um, I found an, a dusty old New Testament, my, my family are readaholics, there are books everywhere, and I did manage to find the New Testament when I looked, um, and I opened it, and I started, Matthew, nope, where's the baby, there's no baby, Mark, no baby, Luke, ah, oh, there's the story of the baby, and I read through the Gospel of Luke, and as I read it, lights came on for me, and it just made so much sense, I knew about sin, I didn't know there was a name for it, so I read through Luke, and I, and I chose to become a Christian, and when I read through this bit in Luke, what it meant to me was I knew my family would absolutely hate me becoming a Christian. Um, but it was, it, was, it was like God was saying, them or me, who are you going to choose? And I just knew I had to choose them because I was pretty desperate at that stage. Um, I'd been through depression. I was really miserable. I just I needed God. So I chose him and I became a Christian. And then 
As time passed, it became clear to my family that I was getting religious. Um, I started going to church on Sunday, and they, and they were really rude, they, as I knew they would be. Oh, that's just so stupid, just pathetic, um, no brain. And then, and then they just, oh, it's just a phase she's going through. It's fine, she'll get over it, you know. And then I didn't get over it. I, started, I joined a home group. I, not only was I going to church on a Sunday, I was going to a home group on a Wednesday, and that's when they thought, oh, she joined a cult. She's, she's, they're going to take her money. They're going to commit suicide. And they will, oh. um, but I continued my journey with God, and I went through counseling and really worked on my relationships with them. And I for forgave a lot of hard things that had happened in my family. And I started loving them more than I loved them before as a Christian. And the dynamics of our relationship shifted. And they started loving me more than they had before we were Christian. Our relationship was redeemed. And I think that's the, that's the real sign of the, of the kindness of God. If you put him first, it looks like such a hard thing. But you put him first above your family or your friends or being popular or being accepted or whatever it is that that causes you to hesitate following him or causes you to not want to do what he wants you to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you rely on, the, on God, if you choose him, everything else comes into alignment. Your relationships with your people, when God is first, your relationships with your people come right and your work is a great servant. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone here. I pray that each one of us will know your amazing, empowering Holy Spirit. I pray for those who are deciding about what they should do with their lives or wanting to make a change. I pray that your will be done. I pray that you will bless the work of our hands. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.